Thank you. Thank you, Henrietta, for the introduction and to Lynn for, for the tech stuff. We are trying to figure out how to do the projector each time with different computers and things like that. It is really terrific to be here again. This is the third time in less than a year, and it's really exciting. It's actually one of my, it's become really, I think, one of the bigger adult education program series is that I'm doing in various places around here. So it's great to get to see you. Uh, the topic that uh, you picked, or at least was picked uh, for us today, really is about the Arab-Israeli conflict. And, and I think what I really set out to do is to try to talk about some basic things about the background. It's much in the news now, but the truth is it's always much in the news. And, but I imagine the most important thing is to, to answer some of your questions. So I want to give a little bit of background for some of you. I'm sure this is very familiar stuff, uh, but for others, perhaps not. And uh, I do want to start by, uh, by just telling you a story, which is something that, that I experienced back in the spring of 1993. And Lori and I were in Israel for that whole half a year. We were studying, I was studying at the seminary in Israel. It was one of the requirements for, for most of the rabbinical programs is to spend some time in Jerusalem and studying. And in the spring, we went and spent a Shabbat on a, um, what's called a Moshav, which is a small settlement that has some agriculture. It's not a kibbutz where everybody owns everything together, but a, uh, a semi-collective um, settlement uh, called Shorashim, which means roots. And it's up in the, in the Galil, the Galilee region in northern Israel, so kind of far from the big um, conflict centers and far from the big city. And Shorashim happens to be affiliated with the conservative movement in Israel, so conservative Judaism. And we spent Shabbat there, and uh, it is a moshav that's on the top of a beautiful hill. I think you can even see from there out to the Mediterranean Sea. And they have kind of a twin town near them, which is a village um, down in the valley called Shab. And on Shabbat afternoon, we took a walk. So we walked down the hill from Shorashim. And when you get to the bottom of the hill, there is an, an olive grove. So you imagine, you know, biblical times and olive trees. And it looks, it looks like just like you're walking out of the Bible. And we walk through this grove for about 10, 20 minutes. And we come to this village at the foot of the hill and beginning... Uh, as soon as we come, a group of rabbinical students from America and our families, about um, you know twenty or thirty of us with the with our with their neighbors from the town of Shorashim, and we walk into this village, and immediately we become sort of swarmed by by children who are kind of eager to see who these visitors from America are, and we walk through the town, and we come to their community center, and we meet a gentleman who's there to greet us. And the gentleman uh, addresses us in Hebrew. We look around on the walls of his center, and it says, um, supported by the UJA Federation of New York. Uh, feel very much at home. And, uh, and the man speaks to us in Hebrew and uh, tells us that the reason that uh, we see the, the people that we do, the reason they're not at, at work, is actually not because of uh, Shabbat, but because they're celebrating a holiday. And the holiday is called Id al-Adha. Oops, I've, I gave you away the punchline already. What he said to us in Hebrew is that they're celebrating a holiday, uh, uh, and the holiday commemorates when Avraham Avinu, our father Abraham, took his son up to the mountain and uh, was commanded to sacrifice him, and at the last minute, uh, he didn't. 
So, you know, if you're, particularly if you're Jewish, if you're Christian, you know this story. And uh, we have this conversation in Hebrew, and we uh, then walk around the village, and we're swarmed as we leave by, by children talking to us a little bit in English and a little bit in Hebrew. And, um, and we leave this place after just this incredible welcome and, and hearing a little more about the town. But the, but the kicker, anyway, is this, and you figured it out, maybe, um, is that um, Shorashim is an Israeli-Jewish village on top of a mountain, and their neighbor down below, the town of Shab, is an Israeli-Arab village. Uh, and these two towns happen to be characterized by a very, very close relationship, and they work together across their cultural and religious divides. Obviously, they speak Hebrew down in the village because Hebrew is one of the, the main languages of, of Israel, and these Israeli Arabs share in the, uh, the state of Israel as citizens. Um, they get money from the Jewish Federation of New York, who is investing in peaceful relations between um, Israeli Jews and Palestinians, especially uh, in the Israeli part of the border. And, um, and it was just fascinating to hear this story that was our story, Avraham Avinu, my father Abraham. But of course, the holiday they were celebrating was a pilgrimage to Mecca. And unlike in the Jewish Bible, where Abraham takes his son Isaac up to the mountain and uh, is supposed to sacrifice him, in the Muslim tradition, the son is uh, Ishmael, the other, the other boy. And, uh, but he told us this story in Hebrew. This was 1993, and it was really just a fascinating um, experience across cultures. And uh, so this was probably April or May that I had this experience, and I came uh, home and was uh, in my home community of St. Paul, Minnesota for the high holidays that year, uh, September 1993. And I was, you know, as usual, a rabbi will spend some time on the high holidays talking about Israel. And I wanted to talk about this wonderful experience that I had with the, uh, the Arabs in Israel. And I was going to tell this story. And um, of course, what happened that September of 1993, we turn on the television and there is uh, the White House, President Clinton, Prime Minister Rabin of Israel, um, Yasser Arafat, the head of the Palestine Liberation Organization, uh, announcing that they are going to uh, have uh, open uh, relations with each other and a plan and a, and a path for peace, finally, to end this conflict. So, of course, every rabbi that year had to tear up the sermon that they were writing and write about this. It happened about you know a week before Rosh Hashanah. And you know we talked about, what I remember talking about that year was... Um, on the one hand, this experience of friendship I had between Jews and Arabs in the land of Israel, and also that sort of strange feeling in the stomach. You know, is it possible that this conflict, um, which has been there for you know over half a century, might come to an end? And not only that, but Jews have been part of a, a conflict with the world, you could say, for 2,000 years, 3,000, you want to say? What would it be like for somebody to say, okay, we don't hate you anymore, we don't fight you anymore? Um, and we talked, sort of reflected about that. So 1993 is already 17 years ago, do the math, and the, uh, the peace process, the peace negotiations that were supposed to come out of that have not been completed yet, um, alas. And so here we are still talking about, about conflict and war, and uh, just in the last couple of days, there was news of a, of a skirmish between Israel and someone on the border, their northern border in Lebanon, and more firing of rockets from uh, the Gaza area in retaliation. What a terrible and tragic situation. So I wanted to try to just illuminate a little bit of how it came to be in the last century and, um, and as I say, answer some questions. I do want to say that um, 
everyone who comes to talk about this, no matter who they are, has a bias, and I have a couple biases. And I hope that the story I told you will tell you of a couple of them. One is I have spent time in Israel. I lived there for a year in college and half a year in rabbinical school. Other times I've visited. Israel is a, is a wonderful place, the homeland for the Jewish people for all these centuries, and a beautiful and very idealistic society. Um, and the love of Israel that I have is a very, very deep thing and, of course, a source of perspective that I have for how I come to this. And at the same time, as I hope the story, my appreciation of this opportunity to reach beyond to people who many people would consider uh, Arabs or Muslims to be uh, the inherent enemies of Jews or Israelis, um, I don't see that at all. Um, if there's any opportunity to create um, friendship and certainly to, to put an end to war, that's something which, which I um, am very, very hopeful uh, the world will be able to, to have, and Israel and the Palestinians will be able to have. So when people say they're pro-Israel and pro-peace, um, and really authentically feel those things, that's certainly the, the dimension I come from. I don't hate anybody. Um, I hate maybe particular people who have done, done terrible acts in this conflict. Um, but I come from the sense that everyone here is a human being. Everyone in that conflict is, uh, is a human being deserving of peace, deserving of life, and uh, deserving of, of nationhood. And that's where I come from. So I want to tell you kind of on one foot a bit of what happened in this place, which we might call the land of Israel or Palestine, since the late 1800s, and uh, why it is that we're in this, in this terrible tussle over a very, very small piece of land. And again, to remind you how small this is, um, has anyone here been, been to Israel, spent time in Israel so a bit? Um, the kind of most important fact about the geography of Israel is that if you start at the western uh, border of Israel and the city of Tel Aviv on the Red Sea. You'll drive about the distance it takes for, to get to downtown Boston or maybe Dorchester, and you will have arrived more or less in Jerusalem, uh, the capital, which is in the middle of the country. And if you take that same ride a little down there, I don't know, to Newport, Rhode Island, something like that, you'll reach Jericho, which is the eastern border. So imagine living in a country that's so skinny. Um, how difficult that must be, and also how hard it might be to share a piece of territory which is so small. We manage it. New Hampshire and Massachusetts have not been at, at war, at least in some time, so far as I know. Um, I hear there's been skirmishes in the past about where to draw the border, but uh, nothing like what's happening in the Middle East. But it's a small area. And uh, the, one of the things, if we had had the computer going, I wanted to show you this wonderful video that I found on the web, which displays all of the, all of the ways in which the land of Israel, Palestine, has been ruled over the past 300 years. So there must have been 15 or more different conquerors or empires who ruled it. And you see how it's part of the Roman Empire and the Ottoman Empire and essentially the British Empire and now the, the state of Israel. Um, just to see you know, how, how long there's been this. Uh, uh, it's not been a place that's ever really been settled down in any way. So, um, but I want to start the story a bit, uh, two pieces of just very old history and then, and then into the present time. So whenever in the ancient world, the land of Israel, which is on the Mediterranean Sea, whenever it was part of empires that were throughout the Mediterranean, the Roman Empire, um, that area was very much tied into the world. The coastal areas would trade you know, by ships and by sea with, uh, with Greece, with Rome, with Spain, uh, with Northern Africa. 
And even the interior areas of Israel would be connected and therefore kind of part of, part of world culture and part of world commerce. Um, that's why, I don't know if you know, that so many um, Jewish customs and so many even Jewish words come from Greek. Uh, because when, when we were part of the Greek and Roman empires, there was all that influence because we were part of that uh, trading world. But um, starting in, you know, a thousand years ago or so, especially in the last five, six hundred years, um, the world of the Mediterranean and of, and of Europe became kind of split. And uh, there was the, the Christian countries of Europe, and then there were the Eastern countries of, um, of North Africa and the Middle East, uh, and no longer quite so tied to each other. And so in the 14 or 1500s, Israel, the land of Israel, was really under the rule of the Ottoman Empire, which was the Turkish Empire, Muslim. And um, to the extent that uh, this was not a prosperous empire of some sort, not engaged in a lot of trading across the world. And um, the truth is that the areas around their coast were kind of let to be uh, not so much trading ports anymore and became depopulated. And uh, the interior hills of the land around Jerusalem and the famous cities became very, very small farming villages. And the people who lived there weren't connected so much to the, to the world. And this was kind of the story up through the 1800s when the, when the Jewish awakening and nationalism began to take place. And um, when Jews began to think about coming back in large numbers to the land of Israel, the land was uh, divided between sort of a full place and an empty place. And the full place with this uh, spine of mountains and hills, if you think about ancient farming around rock-filled terraces, if you can picture that at all, that's the, the biblical style of farming, which the Arabs who've lived there have continued for, for hundreds and hundreds of years. And then there was this empty, swampy set of areas around the coast or in the north where nobody lived. And the Jews were able to buy land there. And so if you uh, picture, I'm going to draw with my finger on this screen. Um, if you picture a kind of uh, an N that's sort of slanted with the coast and a little bit in the middle and then up again, the areas where Jews settled in in the early 1900s were this kind of zigzag, this N or this sideways Z. And uh, not so much, you know, the Jews and the Arabs weren't living, they were living near each other, it's not a very big place, but in distinct settlements and in distinct concentrations. And um, possible, in some sense, to be out of each other's way um, if they needed to be. And it really wasn't an incredibly populated country. But after World War I, when the, when the Turks, uh, who were part of the, uh, the powers allied with, uh, with Germany, uh, were defeated, their empire was broken up into, into bits. And the Western powers decided to nurture, as they did in Europe, small uh, independent states based on uh, ethnic or national identity. So the British were assigned this area of Palestine uh, to nurture it, as just as in India they were to rule for a while and then nurture it to, to independence, I'm simplifying. And, um, but what happened was, um, uh, in the course of the end of World War I, uh, the British made two sets of promises, uh, which were a little difficult to square. They promised the Jews to, to nurture a Jewish national home, they said, in Palestine. They didn't say in all of Palestine, they didn't say where, but I, and they didn't say a state, they said a national home. Uh, and then promises were made to the Arabs there too that they would also have, have, um, have statehood in this land. So immediately there was built in this uh, tension, who was gonna be the people who, who owned this state? And the British 
uh, area was exactly the area that today we would call Israel and the Palestinian territories. So that jigsaw puzzle that we've been talking about, that was one fused area um, known as, as the, you know, the entity of Palestine. And every so often there was, well, it was a prosperous time, so people moved in. People, Jews were leaving, fleeing from, from Russia and Europe and coming there. Um, there were, uh, it was becoming more prosperous and Arabs were moving from some of the more deserty areas in uh, the Arab world to be down there. Uh, of course, the British Empire is a very prosperous trading empire, so it was, a good, it was a good place to be. And everybody moved in and it got more crowded and more tense as people came together. And every so often during these years of the 20s and the 30s and the 40s, there was, there was fighting. And it became clear that um, the fighting wasn't, it was subsiding but not getting any better. And after World War II, the British um, said to the United Nations, we can't, we're not doing so good here. We can't, we can't do this anymore. Um, and the United Nations studied the, the plan, the situation, and decided that the solution was to divide up the land into a Jewish state and an Arab state. And what they did more or less was to take that um, end of settlement and to assign that area to the Jews, along with a big area in the desert, which nobody too much lived in. And that was to be the Jewish state. And the other areas, which were majority Arab, would be the Arab state. And actually, the way the map looked, and I'm going to see if I can show you a bit on my little computer, so at least you get a, a feel for what's going on here. This map, which is a little difficult to see, shows you that um, this, each state had these three pieces that were kind of disconnected. They really did look like a jigsaw puzzle there. And um, that was the proposal. Uh, it was going to be odd. And the other part of the proposal was that the city of Jerusalem, which was so much intertwined with people living all over, you know, different religions and different nationalities, they said the United Nations will hold on to that city, Jerusalem, and Bethlehem, which is nearby. And uh, that would be international. That would be ruled by the United Nations until, until they could figure out what else to do. And the Jews who lived in there at the time said, well, this is very difficult. How are we going to defend an area like that. Um, it's a very uh, tenuous looking state, but it's the first time in 2,000 years that we've had the opportunity to rule ourselves. We say yes. The Arabs who lived in, uh, in that area and the surrounding countries said, said no and uh, decided instead to see if when the British would leave, they could um, initiate by war um, to conquer the whole area and thereby make it a, make it a, a unitary Arab state. That was the decision. And um, so the fighting began, and when the British left, uh, a war began. And what ensued after that was, um, was fighting. And it was, um, I would say again from the Israeli or Jewish point of view, what happened in 1948 was nothing short of, of miraculous. The Arabs had tanks and airplanes, and the Jews didn't have them at the beginning. Um, they had many, many more people. They were attacking from all different directions. And at various points, the Arabs, you know, were all up through here, and you're fighting on the outskirts of Jerusalem and Tel Aviv, and coming in from, from all directions. And somehow, the Jewish army managed to get itself together, get enough equipment in to, uh, to win this war. And what they were able to do was to uh, improve the map a little bit. When, the, when Israel's war of independence ended, they simply drew the lines where the armies were standing. And which looks like this. So there was a chunk in the middle. Uh, the Jews had conquered much of the area that had been assigned to the Arabs by the UN. And, um, and the Arab armies who were in those particular areas stayed there. So the Jordanians were a 
around here, and they took that area, which came to be known as the West Bank, west side of the Jordan River, and they took it for themselves. And the Egyptians had this little slice here called the Gaza Strip around the city of Gaza, and they held that for themselves. There really wasn't any attempt to set that up as a Palestinian local state at the time, and, and I don't know why. Um, it certainly could have been, that was one of the options, but they preserved a, a kind of state of war with a, an end to hostilities for a while. And that was 1948-1949. And it continued to be a tense situation, obviously, sometimes more so and sometimes less. And, uh, and the big changing event occurred in 1967. 